All right, so as we prepare to kind of transition into the uh, sermon part of our service, third and fifth graders, you guys are, are good to head out um, to children's ministry. For everybody else that is here, especially those of you who are new, I do have a little disclaimer that I want to throw up front before we dive into the meat of our passage today. And that disclaimer is this. I, my name is Jake, I am not the guy that is normally up here on Sunday mornings, okay? And the reason that I say that is that if you walk out these doors today and you're like, I really got something out of that service, I really thought that God was able to speak to a place that I am at in my life now, then one, Praise God for the work that he is doing here in Pillar through the power of his word because he deserves all of the glory, the glory through it. And I encourage you to come back next week because Colby, the guy that's usually up here, will be back next week and he's a lot better at this than I am. That's right. But also, if you walk out of here today and you're like, that guy talked super fast. He was looking down at his notes a lot. He had like weird hand gestures all the time. I encourage you, come back next week because Colby will be back here and he is a lot better at this than I am. So as we uh, now know that, I encourage you, if you have a Bible, turn with me. We're going to be in the book of Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And as you are turning there, um, we are going to be continuing today our sermon series titled Greatest Hits, A Fresh Look at Classic Bible Texts. And kind of the idea behind this series is that we're moving throughout Scripture, identifying some greatest hits or some passages that are really prominent and well-known within our culture, but we're taking a look at them within their context and really diving into the truth that they have for our lives. And Kind of a theme that's come up throughout this series is that, is that there's something unique about the way that greatest hits often work. And that's that we are drawn to greatest hits often because of the way they sound, the way they make us feel, but we don't always understand what's actually going on within the hit itself, right? And Colby referenced... Um, a couple different songs where this was the case, mostly, uh, at least for my generation that's in here today. Those songs came a little bit before our time. So we're going to bring it back into the 21st century today by talking about a similar song by our very own Taylor Swift. Right? If we continued through the Greatest Hits series without a T-Swizzle reference, I think we would be remiss. So Taylor Swift a while back had a song called Blank Space. And there was a line in that song that there was a lot of debate on what Taylor was actually saying. Some people, myself included, thought she was making a Starbucks reference in her Starbucks lover's line. Other people, upon further study, realized that she was actually saying something about star-crossed lovers, which in the context actually made a lot more sense for the song. But if we didn't understand the context of the song, then we weren't going to be able to properly understand those lyrics or what they wanted to offer. And our greatest hits that we're studying in this series are very similar in that way. Is that if we don't look at the context that we find these verses or these passages within, then we could potentially be misled in our interpretation of those passages. So today, the greatest hit that we're going to be looking at isn't a single verse like it has been in the, the weeks past, but instead it's going to be a story or more accurately, a parable. And it's one of the more well-known parables. You've probably run into this uh, if you were raised in the church during your like kids' ministry classes, or if you're a parent and you maybe have like a children's Bible uh, that you maybe read to your kids, you've probably run into this passage before, but we're gonna be talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan. So we're gonna be starting by reading in verse 25, and we're actually gonna read all the way to the end of the chapter. 
So Luke chapter 10, verse 25 reads, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he, being Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, Take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word, Lord. We just pray that as we look into it today, Lord, that you would just reveal to us more about you, Lord, that we would see ourselves rightly um, in view of what your scripture has to say about us and what it says about you, Lord, and that we would then be able to respond rightly to that truth, Lord, that you would be glorified through it. We pray these things in the name of your son. Amen. Now, when we look at this passage from the 10,000-foot level, what we see is that Luke starts the passage by exposing us to a problem. He then shows us two different responses to that problem that he reveals. And he then leaves us to choose which of those responses we are going to seek to emulate. Now, ultimately, by doing so, what Luke wants us to see in the passage, or the main idea of the passage, is that in order to respond rightly, to our greatest problem, we must recognize our greatest need and then be rooted in its good source. Now, this begs the question, what is our greatest problem? What well, we see the answer to that at the beginning of the text in this interaction that Luke captures between a lawyer and Jesus. Now, a couple quick things that we should know about this phrase, lawyer. The word used for lawyer literally just means one who is learned in the law. In this phrase, the law is not referencing like our U.S. penal code, but is instead talking about what is known as the Mosaic law or the law given by God to the nation of Israel within the first five books of the Old Testament. 
Now it's important to note that the Israelites viewed the purpose of the law as being the thing or the way that when followed correctly gave them eternal security as the people of God. Or putting it another way, the law is what when followed made them legally right with God. So we have this guy who's literally a professional at knowing, understanding, and interpreting this thing that he likely viewed as the means by which he could be declared as legally right with God. He then goes to Jesus and asks him the question that we see in verse 25, which is essentially asking about how he can ensure that he stays or exists within that legally right relationship with God. And what we see is that he isn't really asking the question in a way that genuinely seeks an enlightened response, but instead is asking the type of question that seeks confirmation of an already previously held set of beliefs. We can see this both in the way that Luke intentionally identifies the man as an expert of the law, as well as we see it in the man's response when Jesus turns the question back onto him. You see, in the passage, Jesus does what many good teachers do when asked a question by someone who isn't seeking enlightened understanding, but is instead seeking confirmation of some beliefs that they already held. And that is Jesus turns the question back onto that asker so that he can identify what that person's position is that they're asking the question from. So in verse 27, we actually see the lawyer's response to Jesus' question. And that response is the phrase that we see that the lawyer references where he talks about loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and then loving your neighbor as yourself. It's important to note that this phrase is actually a combination of two separate passages that can be found in the Old Testament. One is from Deuteronomy 6, and the other is in Leviticus 19. And it was looked at, this phrase, by the Jewish people as a way of summarizing everything that was contained within that Mosaic law. Even Jesus himself in Matthew 22 states that all the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments about loving God and loving your neighbor. Therefore, what we see the lawyer saying here is that he believes that the way in which he is able to sit in a right standing with God and thereby gain access to eternal life is by fulfilling the entirety of God's law as laid out in the Old Testament. And then as we see the lawyer make this assertion that in order to be in a right standing with God, what he needs to do is fulfill the entire law, we see Jesus, in an unexpected response, actually agrees with the guy. We see in verse 28 that Jesus tells the lawyer that he has, in fact, answered correctly and that he should go and do that very thing that he just said. He should go and keep the entirety of the law. Now, when we read this, this feels like the part of a movie where there's like a musical montage going on and then suddenly so, uh, something unexpected happens and we hear that like record scratch sound effect and everyone freezes and looks at the camera, right? Because like this is not the response that we would expect to hear from Jesus in this situation. But you see, Jesus' response, while it may at first seem like a clear and simple yet unexpected command about living our life in a certain way, Really what Jesus' response is showing us is that the great problem that Luke wants us to see and that, the Luke, uh, that, the lawyer want, or that Jesus wants for the lawyer to see is this. That if the way in which we gain a right standing with God and thereby access to eternal life is through the keeping of the law, 
then we can't gain a right standing with God because we haven't kept the law. We just haven't done it, and we're not going to be able to. No matter how hard we try, no matter how disciplined we are, no matter how good we might be, we have all fallen short. We have all missed the mark. We've all failed to be even the person that we would want ourselves to be, much less the person that God commands us to be within his perfect law. So here it is in this tension between the demands of the law and our own inability to fulfill them that Luke reveals to us our greatest problem, which is that we cannot on our own fulfill the requirements of the law, so we cannot make ourselves to be in a right standing with God. We can't access eternal life because we, on our own, separate from Christ, do not have access to God. So now we have to ask, what do we do with that? If that is true, which Jesus says that it is, how then do we respond? And that's what this passage is showing us. As the passage continues, Luke shows us this, and he shows us this by first showing us one response and highlighting that this is the way that we are not to respond, and then he's going to contrast it with a second response and call us to emulate that second response. So what we see in the first response of the lawyer is the way that Luke doesn't want us to respond to this truth about our inability to fulfill the law. What Luke wants us to see from the lawyer's response is that in order to respond rightly to our greatest problem, we must not react by trying to justify ourselves through our actions in the law, but instead we must recognize that our greatest need is for mercy. Luke shows us this starting in verse 29 when instead of responding to his recognition that he could not fulfill the very thing that he claimed was the key to gaining a right standing with God by confessing his failure to Jesus and then asking Jesus what he should do, the lawyer instead attempts to do what many of us try to do when we find ourselves in a similar situation, which is to reduce the standard itself. The text tells us that the the text tells us that the lawyer desires to, quote, justify himself. With the word justify being this legal term, which means either to declare or make righteous, or to show or to prove to be right or reasonable. Now as we look at this combination of definitions, we can see that what the lawyer is trying to do through the response that he gives to Jesus is to make himself righteous by showing that his actions with respect to following the law have been reasonable. It's important that we not miss this. The lawyer's response to his inability to fulfill the requirements of the law is to try to change the requirement from perfect obedience to reasonable compliance. And he does this by trying to place limits on who he is required to love. Now, if we just take a second and we think about this in our own lives, is this not us? I mean, do we not see that this is the exact response that we often have in our life when we are confronted with our inability to live up to the expectations that God has for us as outlined within his law? That when we're confronted with the reality of our own sin, we are so prone to falling into attempts at self-justification by placing limits on the obedience that we are expected to display. We use excuses about who someone is or what they have done to us, the situation that we are in, what has been done to us in the past in order to try to justify our response 
and show the reasonableness of our behaviors. Our actions themselves echo the response of the lawyer as our failure to live as we should asks questions of God such as who is my neighbor and when are they my neighbor? For surely God, the person who holds this political belief or has treated me in this way or has said those things to me or belongs to this particular group with which I don't identify, surely I don't have to regard them as a neighbor. Or surely when my spouse says hurtful things to me or my children are unruly and disobedient, then in those times, though I care for those people because of what they have done to me, I don't have to treat them as a neighbor, right? That would be unreasonable. But Jesus has something to say about these situations. He has something to say about that response. And it's the exact same thing that he says to the lawyer in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now in the parable, we see Jesus tells what for many of us is a familiar tale about this man who is presumably Jewish, who is attacked, robbed, and then left for dead. Then two Jewish religious leaders see the man on the side of the road during their separate travels, and they choose not to stop and help, but they leave the man there to die. And then a Samaritan, an individual who identifies with a group who hated all Jews and would have regarded this dying man as his enemy, this Samaritan comes along and chooses to help the man. He cares for him. He provides funds to ensure that he continues to receive the care that he needs. And then at the end of the parable, Jesus returns to the lawyer and asks him a simple question. And we see this question in verse 36, which reads, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Do you see what Jesus did there? He flipped the lawyer's question that he originally asked upside down. In the lawyer's question in verse 29, the lawyer is making the assumption that the neighbor is the person that is on the receiving end of the action. He says, and who is my neighbor? Or in other words, who do I need to give my love to? But Jesus, in his question, turns this around by asking who proved to be the neighbor? Or in other words, which of these three was the one who was taking the action for the one who is providing for the need, the one who is demonstrating love, the one who showed mercy. That is the one who is the neighbor. The neighbor is not the one receiving the love. They're the one giving it. And how do they give it, Jesus is asking? By showing mercy, the lawyer replies. And Jesus tells him to go and do likewise. Now, in flipping around the lawyer's understanding of what it means to be a neighbor, Jesus is showing the lawyer to... Uh, two things. One, he is continuing to show the lawyer the true depths of his failure to fulfill the requirements of the law. Jesus is responding to the lawyer's attempt to create a category of people who the lawyer is not required to love by showing the lawyer that such a, such a category does not exist. In fact, he is showing the lawyer that the lawyer's failure to adequately love is not a result of certain people being unlovable, as the lawyer asserted, but instead the problem is that the lawyer doesn't know how to properly love. The question is not that some people do not qualify to be the lawyer's neighbor because of their actions, but instead that the lawyer's actions prove that he's the one who has failed to be the neighbor. 
So the lawyer's attempts to justify or compensate for his failure to adequately fulfill the requirements of the law have done the exact opposite of what it is that he originally intended. Instead, his attempts at self-justification have only furthered uh, displayed his inability to justify himself. And then secondly, Jesus is exposing to the lawyer that his greatest need is not self-justification under the law, but is instead mercy from the one who created the law. You see, when Jesus tells the lawyer to go and do likewise at the end of the parable in verse 37, the tension that exists in this passage that we saw at the beginning still isn't resolved. Instead, we see the lawyer being in a similar position to the one that we saw him in back in verse 28. He is still being given a command that he knows he has been and will be unable to adequately fulfill. So what is Jesus saying here? He is further showing the lawyer that he must abandon his attempts to respond to his failure by placing limits on who he must regard as a neighbor. And instead, the lawyer must humbly recognize not his need to be a neighbor, but instead his need for a neighbor. He must recognize his own inability to perfectly extend mercy and therefore recognize his need to receive perfect mercy from the only person who can offer it to him, the creator of the law itself. He must recognize that in the parable, he's not the Samaritan, but instead he's the man on the side of the road, left for dead, with no ability to provide for himself, with no ability to provide the help that he truly needs. Therefore, instead of worrying about how to better be a neighbor in order to fulfill the law, he needs to go and seek a neighbor, the one who can provide for him what he truly needs, the one who can provide for him mercy. So in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we see Luke showing us that our great need is for mercy. But then we must ask, what does it look like to receive that? How do we embody or prioritize the receiving of that mercy? And that is what Luke shows us as we continue on in verses 38 through 42. In this section of the passage, we see, Luke, we see Luke showing us that in order to respond rightly to our greatest problem, we must also be rooted in the presence of Jesus. In this section of verses, we now see Jesus and his followers in the home of two sisters, Mary and Martha. And the scene that we see is Martha frantically running around trying to serve her guests while her sister Mary is found sitting at the feet of Jesus in listening to his teaching. Now, Martha sees this and she gets a little bit angry. And many of us might say justifiably so. I mean, she's the one running around, working hard, serving, doing tangible get acts that care for her guests. Meanwhile, her sister Mary is just sitting around. Now, if you put any one of us into this situation, we would likely have the exact same response that Martha has which is to express her dissatisfaction at the lack of her sister's help. We see this in verse 40 when Martha says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Now, if we stop there and look at the way this passage is paired with the parable of the Good Samaritan, an improper reading of the passage may lead us to think that Jesus is going to respond with something along the lines of, Martha, you're right. 
You're the one loving your neighbor by serving, and your sister should go and do likewise. But that's not at all the response that we see. Instead, what we see is that Martha is not viewed as acting like the, great, the good Samaritan, but instead she is placed into a similar category as that of the lawyer. Jesus responds to Martha's demand by saying to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Essentially what Jesus is saying here is that Martha's service is fueled by the anxiety that is brought forth from her desire to earn Jesus' favor through her service. But what she misses is that this is not what Jesus demands or desires of her. Instead, Jesus tells Martha that he desires that she partake in the only thing that is necessary, in the portion that is good. But what is that good portion? Well, it's exactly what is referenced in the text. It's sitting humbly as one ready to be taught at the feet of Jesus, rooting in his presence and listening to him as he lovingly instructs her. This is what a posture of receiving mercy looks like. This is what surrendering your attempts at pleasing God or justifying yourself through your own actions in relying upon the saving work of Christ looks like. Charles Spurgeon, on a sermon on this topic, helped us understand Mary's actions by describing them in this way. He says, the mere posture of sitting down and listening to the Savior's word was nothing in itself. It was that which it indicated. It indicated in Mary's case a readiness to believe what the Savior taught to accept and to obey. Nay, to delight in the precepts which fell from his lips. And this is the one thing needful, absolutely needful. For no rebel can enter the kingdom of heaven with the weapons of rebellion in his hands. We cannot know Christ while we resist Christ. We must be reconciled to his gentle sway and confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the response that Luke intends to point us to through the text. An abandonment of our own attempts to find favor with God through our own means, through the fulfillment of the law, and instead replace that with a complete reliance upon the mercy of God as found in the person of Jesus. So if this is what Luke wants us to see, if this is what is revealed to us as we dive into the text, then what do we do with this? How are we supposed to respond? Well, I've got three different ways that I think we can apply the truths revealed in this passage to our lives. Number one is that we need to respond by abandoning the lawyer's response. Now, if you are here today and you find yourself worn down by this seemingly endless struggle of trying to be a good enough person to earn God's favor, never sure if you've done enough or are good enough, then the encouragement that I want to give to you today is that you absolutely are not. But you don't have to be. You don't have to rely upon your own ability to fulfill the requirements of the law because Jesus has already done it on your behalf. And no matter how hard you might try, you will never be able to be the person that you want to be, much less the person that God calls you to be through your own efforts. But if you abandon the lawyer's response of self-justification and instead recognize your need for mercy, then you can experience the transformational power of Christ as he is the one at work in your life. 
Because while we cannot fulfill the requirements of the law on our own, we are still called to go and do likewise, to go and be like the Samaritan. But being like the Good Samaritan requires that we first recognize our need for mercy. We surrender ourselves to the lordship and the saving power of Jesus and allow him to be the one who is at work in us. For that which the law demands of us, only the gospel can truly produce in us. Now the second way that we are able to respond to this is that we assume the posture of Mary. Now, for many of you sitting in here today, you have recognized your need for mercy and surrendered to the authority of Jesus to justify you in the sight of God. And yet, you still find yourself living not as a Mary, but as Martha. You find yourself anxious, burnt out, tired. You you labor away, serving, striving to be like the good Samaritan, yet failing to root yourself firmly in the presence of Christ. Just like Martha... You're distracted from the one thing that is necessary, the portion that is good. You're distracted from sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to his teaching. Now, within Jesus' tender correction of Martha, we who have submitted to the authority and work of Christ must recognize the underlying warning that exists for the way in which we relate to Christ in the conduct of his kingdom work. You see, in encouraging Martha to set aside the work that she is anxiously doing and instead partake in the one necessary and good thing, there's this underlying warning that Martha's serving could become such a distraction that she misses the good and lasting portion that is offered to her. She can miss the fellowship, the communion, and the instruction for the, the work that Jesus wants her to do by being so wrapped up in the work itself that she misses what it is that Jesus wants for her. And that same danger exists for each one of us as we go about conducting the work of the ministry if we allow the work itself to become the object of our attention. If it becomes our joy and our motivation instead of the love, the grace, and the mercy of God as displayed in the person of Christ. Now, while the work and the ministries of the church are all good and important things which we are called to partake in as we partner with God in the work of his kingdom, the danger that we face is that if we are not careful to prioritize the receiving of mercy through the daily habits that we have in our life of resting and listening at the feet of Jesus, then the danger that we face is that which Charles Charles Spurgeon once said, which is that we may find ourselves doing what the church tells us, but never doing what it is that Christ tells us. Or in other words, we can become so busy and wrapped up in the work itself that we forget that the work is not the end, but the means. The means for allowing us to experience what it is to partner with, to learn from, and be loved by the creator of the universe and the sustainer of life who needs nothing from us, yet desires to have a relationship with us. This truth also shapes the way that we look at the ministries that take place here inside of the church. While we are commanded to provide care for and serve others in tangible ways, Pillar Church's foremost role is not to be an instrument of social action. 
but instead an instrument that is dedicated to facilitating and nourishing a deep love for Christ, which then bursts forth from this body in tangible ways as an outpouring of worship because of the way that Christ first served us. Now, I recognize that when we're in this part of the passage, as the executive pastor, the guy who is like generally responsible for taking vision and transitioning it into tangible execution, that I am walking on like some sensitive ground right here, right? Because if we buy too much into one side of this, then we're going to have a lot of great ministries, a lot of great worship, but we are going to fail at ever going forth from this building in doing likewise. But more importantly, if we fail, to be like Mary, if we fail to be rooted in the person of Jesus, to come and humbly and quietly sit at his feet and listen to what he has to say to us, then all of those efforts to go out and do likewise are going to be found as hollow. And instead of a people that want to go and provide love and hope and display the mercy of Christ, we are going to find ourselves as a people who are going and being burnt out having no hope of our own, having no love at our own to share. Because it's not gonna be coming from a place of an overflowing worship, but it's gonna be coming from our own resources, which are going to be inadequate to doing the work that Christ has for us. So we need to start here at the feet of Jesus, understanding what he has to say about who we are, about what he values, about who he loves, and then respond obediently by going out and doing likewise. Now, as we do this, I've got a couple questions that can be helpful as we ask ourselves or think about how do I respond or am I responding as I should, as Mary did. So three questions I wanna ask you. One, do I spend more time doing or being? Do I spend more time worrying about, thinking about, and doing good work than I do investing in times of fellowship with Christ? If so, we may need to realign some of our priorities, some of the allocation of our time to ensure that we have the time to rest at the feet of Jesus. Number two, does the work of eliminating sin or serving in the ministry serve as a distraction from or does it drive you toward communion with Jesus through prayer, studying scripture, and meditating on what God is teaching you within your season? Does the work that you are doing here within the church or in the other ministries that you are involved in pull you away from time of fellowship with Christ? Or does it drive you toward Christ as you recognize your inadequacy and your complete reliance upon him to accomplish the work that he has already begun? And then three, when you are in a busy season, what do you eliminate with first? Fellowship with Christ or serving in ministry? Now number three, the third way that we are to respond is to admire and answer the beauty of the Samaritan. Now, when we look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, all of us, regardless of our background or our spiritual state when we walked in these doors today, I think we can agree that we desire to be like the Samaritan. That the works that we see within this passage are beautiful and worthy of imitation. I mean, as we look at the way that the text describes the loving tender and sacrificial care that the Samaritan provides for this stranger, this enemy. We see that he had compassion for the man which caused him to tenderly care for the man's wounds by the pouring out of oil and wine. 
We see that he got off of his own animal, putting the man on his animal. He walked the rest of the way and carried the burden of that man to provide him the care that he needed. And then once he got to his destination, he continued to care for him. And he provided the payment, the cost that was required to ensure that that man received the care that he needed to bring him to a place of complete restoration, to heal his wounds. Now, as the father of a beautiful one-year-old little girl, I look at this passage and my desire is that when she grows up, that this is what she embodies. And I think all of us in here would agree with that, whether it's in your own life or the life of someone that you love. But why is it or what is it in the Samaritan that we find so beautiful? Why has this parable seemed to transcend culture and been something that we can unite around as saying the works of the Samaritan are good? Well, it's because the Samaritan is an image bearer of God. But more importantly, he is an image bearer that points us toward the ultimate image bearer. The one who is God in the flesh upon whom the fullness of God dwells. The person of Jesus. In the work of the Samaritan, we see reflections of the way that Jesus has cared for us. Just as the Samaritan found the man helpless on the side of the road, half dead, Christ has found us helpless, not half dead like the man, but completely dead in our sin. Just as the Samaritan would have viewed the Jew as his enemy, we are enemies of God apart from Christ, separated and at war with him because of our sin. And then instead of the pouring out of wine and oil to care for our wounds, Jesus poured out his own blood on the cross to make the way for our healing. By his wounds, we are the ones that are healed. And then Jesus carried the burden of our sin and provided the full payment that was required for our restoration, our redemption, through his death on the cross. His life, death, burial, and resurrection have made a way for us to be made right with God, are the outpouring of the mercy that Luke shows us that we truly need. Therefore, as we look at this text, we have to admire the beauty of the Samaritan because it points us to the ultimate beauty of Christ in his mercy poured out for us. And then we need to answer that by asking, how have I responded to this beauty? Have I taken my need for mercy? to the feet of Jesus and humbled myself before him, ready to accept, obey, and delight in the work in the person of Christ. Now, in a moment, we're gonna go into the Lord's Supper. And as we do so, we're gonna have the opportunity to partake in the bread and the cup. And as we partake, we get to remember the compassion and the great care that Jesus showed for us as his body was broken and his blood was shed for us on the cross. We remember the cost of our justification, what it looks like to have the mercy of God extended through, uh, to us through the pouring out of justice onto his perfect son. And we, during this time, right now, here today, have the opportunity to come to the feet of Jesus and humbly receive his mercy. So if you're a Christian, we invite you, join us during our time of remembrance today. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mercy 
that is extended to us and that we see poured out in the love of your son. We thank you for the beauty of the work that he has done on our behalf, Lord, that in the midst of our inadequacy, our ability to fulfill the requirements of your law, that you have made a way, Lord. And I pray that we would respond rightly to that by recognizing our need for mercy, by recognizing our need for you, and by then resting in your presence, Lord, that you would be able to teach, to guide, to care for, and to lead us, Lord, that as we then go and do likewise, it would be through just the spirit of your power, Lord, into your glory. And we pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen.